Welcome to the Harbour Centre for International Developments, Road Gem 23, Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Yan Liang. I am a graduate student at Harvard University and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to Gem 23 series proceeds and helps launch CID Global Empowerment Meeting, Growing in a Green World on May 10th and 11th. A CID will work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent address the world's most pressing challenges. And on Road to Gem 23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature learnings from leading researchers and practitioners working to combat climate change. This week, we're joined by Gavin Schmidt, who is a climatologist, climate modeler, and director of the NASA Golden Institute for Space Studies in New York City. Dr. Schmidt has played a key role in advancing our understanding of the complex mechanisms that drive climate change and the ways in which it impacts our planet. Through his research and expertise, he has contributed vitally to identify and mitigate the effects of climate change on society and the natural world. We're excited to have Dr. Schmidt join us today to share his insights on climate change. Dr. Schmidt, thank you for talking with me today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. To start off our conversation, Dr. Schmidt, you have vast experience in modeling and predicting the effects of climate change. Can you talk about what are the biggest challenges in modeling and predicting the effect of climate change? Well, you just need to look out of the window and you can see for yourselves how complex the climate system is. All of the interactions with the weather and the clouds and all the, the heterogeneity of the land surface processes, the, the complexity of the ocean circulation and the ocean eddies. Uh, what we've asked ourselves to do, like what we've tasked ourselves to do, is immensely ambitious. The idea is, can we encapsulate the essence of all of those things, put it into a model, run those simulations, have that stimulated climate be hit with increased greenhouse gases and volcanoes and changes in the Earth's uh, orbit or, or changes in the ocean circulation? And can we use the results of those models to actually predict what we would see in the real world? It's an enormously challenging task. And, you know, to be frank, you know, we've been at it for approximately 40 years. And, you know, we have made a lot of progress. We have skillful predictions of many things. But I would be, I would be remiss in, 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 if I said that we had it all perfectly done. You know, I mean, like the, the complexities, particularly of uh, small scale features with, with, with clouds, with particles in the air and how they interact with clouds. Now, these, these are uncertainties at a very deep microphysical level that we just don't have great observations of. And so, you know, we have lots of different theories. We don't have a lot of constraints. And so, so there are some parts of this, you know, wide open questions. How confident are you in the accuracy of climate models and what improvements can be made? So the accuracy of the models for certain things is actually surprisingly good. So, so for things where effectively you can, you can integrate over a lot of the complexities, where you integrate over the weather, where you integrate over space and time, you try and predict, for instance, the, the global mean temperature, or you try and predict you know, how much heat is going into the ocean 
over the whole globe, or you try and predict what's going to happen to, to the Arctic sea ice or to sea level. It turns out that those big, large numbers are actually quite well predicted by models, uh, not, just, not just the fanciest models that we have now, but the models that were run in, in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s. They've made skillful predictions of where we were going to go and... You know, that's that's pretty much exactly where we're at. And so for, for certain things, we have we have a track record of skillful predictions. But for other things, for instance, exactly how much rain changes there's going to be in this in this region over the next 50 years, not so much. And that uncertainty there or that or that lack of skill is a function of uh, multiple things. One is the, the just the chaotic dynamics of the weather, which which we know can't be predicted more than a couple of weeks in advance, but also because of what we call uh, structural error. So, so structural uncertainty. So we have we have multiple different models that all make slightly different assumptions, that make slightly different estimates of, of the important things in, in the climate. They all look very similar, but they've made slightly different uh, choices. And for some things like the rainfall pattern, one model's rainfall pattern in the future looks quite different from another model's rainfall pattern in the future, particularly in, in, in a, at a regional scale. Not so much in the global scale, not so much in the, uh, you know, if you average everything across all the longitudes, it doesn't look so different. But, but if you look at the east coast of the United States, or you look at northern Europe, or you look at Africa, the patterns can be quite different from one model to another. And so that tells us that we either are not doing quite the right thing or there isn't very much predictability, but, but there's, there's clear uncertainty. And so uh, we are working all the time to try and improve these models based on bringing down data from satellites, looking at different processes, and then using that to kind of see if, if, those, if those predictions converge or diverge or, 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 or you know, how, how, can, how can we impact those, uh, uh, those predictions? So uh, it's very much a work in progress. We, we know a lot about some things and there are some things we know very little about. And so, and everything else kind of falls on a spectrum there. And, and knowing what it is that you can use comfortably and with what level of uncertainty is very much uh, something you need to kind of dive into to say it's not a, it's not, it's not a slam dunk. That's really interesting. There are a variety of methods to better understand past climate change, including analyzing historical data from sources such as ice cores, tree rings, sediment layers. How do you reconcile historical data with models to better understand past climate change? Right. So the key thing about these models is that they are they're they're free running. You know, they don't ingest data on a continuous basis like like a weather forecast model. And so we want them to be able to predict climate changes, not not just you know what's going to happen tomorrow or, or next week or next year. But unfortunately, the, the the data set that we have that we that we have a lot of data for is pretty much like the the the, the remote sensing period since about 1979. And while we have seen some climate changes. Uh, over that time period, we've seen trends in, in temperature and sea level and rainfall extremes and the like. It's not sufficient to be able to confidently state that when you're way out of that, that kind of calibration era, that you're going to be doing something correct, right? So you need to use out-of-sample data of real climate change, real large climate changes. Um, and so we, we turn to the, uh, the paleoclimate records. You, you mentioned tree rings and ice cores and the like. 
Um, and we try and, uh, and go back and, and see if we can match periods like the last glacial maximum, which is around 20,000 years ago, where that was the, the maximum extent of the Northern Hemisphere ice sheets in the, in the last few million years. Uh, a very different climate, a colder climate, and colder because there were less greenhouse gases, because the ice sheets were, were so large, they affected the, the global albedo. Uh, vegetation was obviously quite different. Uh, the shape of the continents was different because sea level had, had dropped by about 400 feet uh, at that point. Uh, so uh, you can put that in and you can say, okay, well, does this model, which we've built based on our understanding of modern climate, does it produce the same large-scale cooling that we see at, at the last DCM, at, at, at the last spatial maximum, if you give it those boundary conditions, those greenhouse gases, those uh, those ice sheets and the like. And that's a very good test. And for models that are too sensitive, right? So so models might be, oh, you know, a little bit of carbon dioxide and boom, you know, massive change. It turns out that those models don't do a very good job at the at, at the ice age. But models that have a kind of, you know, kind of mid-range climate sensitivity, it's called. So, so how much warming uh, you would expect for a doubling of CO2 in the, in the atmosphere. Those models do quite well. And so that gives us uh, some confidence that the projections that those models give us for the future are kind of ballpark correct. And so that, that's, and that's, those changes in the future are very large. And so that's, that's really the reason for concern uh, moving forward. That's fascinating. It's amazing how much we can learn from studying the natural world. So based on your research, how do changes in ocean circulation impact the Earth's climate system? Yeah, so the ocean is a massive part of the of the climate. It, it, it's what provides a lot of stability. There's a lot more noise in the atmosphere, but it's kind of anchored by, you know, the fact that it takes an enormous amount of energy to change the temperatures of the ocean. I mean, we're succeeding in doing that because we're putting a lot of energy into the system through the changes in greenhouse gases. But aside from that, the changes in the ocean circulation have very dramatic and, and, and direct effects. I mean, so this year, you know, we've, ha we've had a number of uh, La Nina uh, events in the tropical Pacific uh, that has... Uh, it's just about to shift to an El Nino pattern, a tropical Pacific, uh, which will kind of build as we get towards the end of this year. And these, these, are, these are very large patches of cold or, or anomalously warm water along the equator near the eastern Pacific, kind of in the, in the Galapagos, kind of Peruvian coastal region. And those changes have long distance effects in, in, on rainfall in Indonesia, in Australia, um, in South America, but also in, in the American Southwest. So, so La Nina events are, are, are statistically tied to drought conditions in the American Southwest, and that, that American Southwest drought has been ongoing for, uh, for a number of years now, as, as you're almost certainly aware. Anyway, so that seems to be about to flip. And so we're going to see a long long distance connections from that change in the ocean circulation. On on longer term timescales, uh, we know that in the North Atlantic there are oscillations and 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 sometimes total reorganizations of the ocean circulation in the North Atlantic that can have very dramatic impacts on uh, northern hemisphere temperatures as a whole um, and kind of European and and uh, Kind of Canadian temperatures as well, and so we we can see that in that in that paleoclimate record. You know, we can see times when that circulation was very strong, times when it was weak, and that has had impacts on 
temperature rainfall all around uh, all around the North Atlantic. So we know we know that that's that that's very important. And that understanding how ocean circulation is changing and what impacts that might have is of vital importance. Also, climate change has been shown to have a significant impact on extreme weather events. Could you discuss the relationship between climate change and extreme weather events? So this is relatively new in the science. We have uh, warmed the climate by about one degree Celsius, a little more than that. Uh, since the late 19th century, and you know that's that's a very clear signal once you once you aggregate everything together. But it's also a large enough signal that we're starting to see the impacts of that on weather that that you might experience locally. And the things that you notice most locally are when you have extremes, where you have extreme heat waves, extreme cold events, extreme rainfall events, extreme droughts. Those are the kinds of things that people notice and, and, and pay attention to. And so what we have seen is that we're seeing an increasing number of heat waves, right? So the Pacific Northwest last no, two years ago now, similar things in, in, in Europe and in Pakistan and in Madagascar and you know all around the world, we're seeing increases in the incidence and extremity of uh, of heat waves. That's something that is tied to the fact that the whole planet is getting warmer, right? As part of that as well, the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is increasing. It increases by about 7% for every degree Celsius that the globe warms. And when there's more water in the atmosphere, what happens is that when it rains, when you have like a frontal system, a cold air meeting with the warm air, more of that rain comes out and more of it comes out in heavier amounts. And so we're seeing pretty much everywhere we have good data increases in the extreme rainfalls. A great example of that in the US was uh, was Hurricane Harvey uh, and uh, Ida um, and Francis, uh, but not just hurricanes, but like, you know, but, but, but uh, big, big storm events uh, more generally, we're seeing stronger rain. I mean, just, just last week in, um, uh, in Florida, we, ha- we had an event that was like a one in a thousand year event in terms of the rainfall amount. It was just massive, massive amounts of rain. And so we're seeing we're seeing those increase uh, over time. Uh, and then we have, because the sea level is rising, sea level is rising because we're melting ice, right? That's putting water into the ocean. We're also warming the ocean, which is causing it to expand. And that means that global sea level is, is increasing. Um, where you have a connection between you know, an increase of sea level, but also perhaps an increase in subsidence because of, you know, groundwater reductions and things like that. We're seeing much greater increases in coastal flooding. Uh, so we see that uh, all up and down the U.S. East Coast, from from Boston to uh, Newport to Savannah to Miami, uh, everywhere along those things, we're seeing increases in, in coastal flooding days. So those are those are very palpable, and people people can see how these things have changed, and and they're very they're very local and they're very impactful. That's really concerning. Looking ahead, how do you see the Earth's climate system responding to natural and anthropogenic forcings in the coming years? Well, I mean, there always are natural forcings. You know, volcanoes go off, the sun does its thing. You know, the, there's a wobble in the Earth's orbit that 
is very wobbly, but like over tens of thousands of years makes a, certainly makes a difference to the climate. Uh, those things are all ongoing. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of the trends that we've seen over the last 50 years are not due to any of that. They're due to our changes, like the changes in the greenhouse gases, the changes in the ozone layer, the changes in deforestation, changes in air pollution. All of those things now totally dominate the trends in the climate system. And that's that's true for you know the last 50 years. And because we're not stopping, because we're continuing to add things to the atmosphere. Uh, our emissions last year were about 10 gigatons of carbon into, into the atmosphere. That needs to get to zero for us to stop having an impact on the trends. And until we do that, we are going to continue to have those impacts on the trends. And so what happens to, to natural things, you know, those that, that's, that's like a blip on, on a, on a on, it's, it's like a bump on a very long ski slope. You know, it could be problematic, but, uh, but that's not really what's going on. In light of the impact of climate change, what measures can be taken to build more resilient infrastructures and communities? Are there any innovative solutions that you find particularly promising? So I'm not really an expert on solutions, but there's, there's, there's many things to do, right? So being kind of climate resilient means knowing what's likely to happen, building that into your decision-making process, whether that's infrastructure, transport infrastructure, energy infrastructure, building infrastructure, all of those things we need to be thinking in a kind of joined up way. We've been slightly handicapped by people thinking that investment budgets are different from operational budgets. We need to be thinking about these things together, right? So there's a lot of things that we can do up front that invest in passive houses, in better ventilation uh, that are more expensive up front, but reduce costs down the road and increase resilience. Uh, and so we need to be doing a lot more of that. That takes a lot more planning. It takes a lot more people talking to each other across disciplines and across languages of, of various kinds. And so we need to be doing a lot more of that. We need to be thinking uh, very deeply about where we're building things and how we're building things where we're doing it. You know, we're seeing uh, changes to the floodplains. Uh, we're seeing increasing risks of flooding in many areas, like Houston is a great example, where we're, we're building inappropriate and, and, and ill-advised projects, right? Because people aren't taking into account how those flood maps are changing, or, or they're trying to play games and say, okay, well, if I, if I build like one foot above the flood level, then I don't need to worry about it. And on all those kinds of planning decisions that are you know, controlled by, by state regulations or state rules, a lot of those things need to be updated uh, to help people make better decisions about where to put very large amounts of money and in, in infrastructure. But, you know, what we really need to be doing, right, so that's, that's a kind of reactive thing, but we, but we can't keep reacting to an ever-increasing, worsening situation. We have to be working on reduction of the, of, the, of the problem, and that means we have to be working towards net zero for carbon dioxide and reductions to methane and reductions to, to other kind of air pollutants as well. Uh, those are absolutely essential, and, and they need to be part of that conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. What are the most promising technologies or strategy for mitigating the impact of climate change? So there's a lot of great technology. I mean, as as you're as you're probably aware, new renewables uh, is is cost effective even with existing fossil fuel generation of electricity in many many places now. That 
is just going to accelerate as, as those the, the cost of that gets cheaper. But we need to be able to build the infrastructure that can take care of that. So we need to be investing in grid technology. We need to be investing in high, uh, high voltage connectors between different regions so that you can more easily balance renewable loads for where it's windy, where it's nighttime, where, where you need storage, where you have storage. We need to be thinking, uh, and people are, obviously, we're thinking about uh, battery technology, uh, not just mobile batteries, but large-scale uh, grid-level storage uh, batteries. There's a lot of very promising ideas and, uh, and techniques that are, that are involved there. Um, lots of that stuff can be done very quickly, and it turns out that it doesn't need to be that much to make a huge difference in how flexible your power system can be. And we need to be electrifying everything, right? We, uh, wherever we can, we need to be taking away the direct burning of fossil fuels, whether it's for heating of buildings, whether it's for cooking, whether it's for mobile station cars. We need to move towards a, an electrical system that, to support that and then build <clears throat> more generating capacity to support that. Thank you so much, Dr. Schmidt, for taking the time to talk with us today. You can find more information about Dr. Gavin Schmidt and NASA Goda Institute for Space Studies stuff page. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Climate of Gavin. Thanks again to Dr. Schmidt for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the CID's research, upcoming events, and how to join the JAM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.